Lord, your faithfulness to us goes beyond what we can understand. You know, in our frailty and our limitations and in our corruption and sin, we can't see everything that you do. We see these great demonstrations of who you are and and what you've done. We see that uh, in the atoning work of Jesus. So, as we contemplate that, as we open your word and share it together, I pray that you would bless, that you would guide, that you would build your people up, that you would draw people um, to believe the gospel, that your name would be praised, and that the, the light of the Lord would shine brightly. So to that end, uh, we pray your blessing in this moment. Help us to, to understand and receive and submit to and apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me have you turn to John chapter 10, and we're going to get, to the, we're going to get through uh, John 10 this morning. Let me just say there's an incongruity between the, port, the importance of clearly understanding uh, who Jesus is and the number of people who think they have a clear understanding but lack it. Uh, you know, when it comes to Jesus. So it's absolutely important to understand who Jesus is, to have a clear uh, view of who he is and what he's done. But few people have it. You know, from a numbers perspective, uh, it'd be a very interesting issue, right? You see this huge disparity. But it's not a numbers problem, it's actually a human problem. And so with that, we see that on display in this particular passage. It's going to be John Chapter 10, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read it together. It says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, meaning Jesus. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Again, this is the word of the Lord. If you just look at the narrative in Toto, this part, you can obviously see that this is the, the finishing up of the passage that Brad uh, preached on last week. I want to just point out these three highlights and the, the big ones in the middle. So if you see how short the first one is, don't get too excited. Um, the first one comes in the very first verse. It's in verse 31, and let's just call it timing and tension. The timing looks back on that, uh, the first part of the passage that Brad addressed last week. The timing is the Feast of 
dedication. It's a, Jesus is actually in the temple. Not everybody celebrated the Feast of Dedication there. You see it up there in uh, verses 22 and 23. That's where he was. He's walking in the temple. It's this big celebration. And if you remember, the Feast of Dedication was a holiday. It's like a National Independence Day. And the, the history was in that what we would call the intertestamental period during the Maccabean uh, revolt, there was a guy, he's a bad guy, named Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 167 BC overtook Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple. And the way he did that was by sacrificing a pig and I think dedicating it to Zeus. You know, just he's making a statement that he was taken over and that the Jewish religion uh, wasn't going to be uh, allowed anymore. Very brutal to the Jewish people. And the Jews revolted under, it's called the Maccabean Revolt, under the leadership of a guy named Judas Maccabeus. It means Judas the Hammer, cool name. Um, and by 164, they got their independence back. And so they celebrated that. That's what they're celebrating in this passage. It means like the Festival of Lights or, uh, you know, the name of it that you'd be familiar with these days is Hanukkah. And so the point is, you know, they rededicated the temple and they're celebrating their independence. But the point is, in this passage, that's where it starts with Jesus. And so uh, it's a very public, in the middle of everything setting. This isn't a side conversation. This isn't anything like that. It's a, it's a public, everybody's watching. There's a lot of scrutiny on Jesus. It's that kind of situation. That's the timing. But tension, that's the second thing. Did, did you notice the rocks? Right? Verse, uh, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if somebody asks you a question, it's one thing to answer it. It's another thing to answer that same question if somebody asks you a question, but they have a gun pointed at you. All right? There's a two different sensations. Um, you're, you're likely to be motivated to answer it differently one way versus the other. If somebody just says, you know, what do you think of my hair? And uh, you're just like, you know, maybe I should tell them the truth. But if they've got a gun, don't you think their hair looks very nice that day, right? <laughs> so there's a whole crowd, and they've got stones to stone him. Um, it's a very tense situation. He's looking down the barrel of a gun. Uh, did you notice also the word again? Uh, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Not like, not the first time. You'd think that would be a once-in-a-life uh, experience, right? You know, if, if people, if there's a crowd and you're in the crowd and they pick up stones to stone you, that's, that's going to be a one-off, right? You're probably not going to have a second shot at that. But it's again, it's a recurring scenario. As a matter of fact, in this whole passage, the word again shows up again. So you can see they picked up stones again. In other words, they've done it before. They sought to arrest him, verse 39, again. In other words, they had done it before. And he went away again, verse 40. Uh, he had done that before. Uh, Jesus' life and ministry is in the hands of his Father. They can't touch him without the Father. So, but anyway, time and intention. Why the rocks? Why do they seek to kill him? So that takes us to the next narrative highlight, and that's the substantive issue, verses 32 through 38. What is it? What is the issue? Why are they so fired up? Well, it's an interesting question. Because the public framing of it is one thing. If you pop up again to verse 24, it sounds something like this. This is the public expression of it. So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, here's the stated issue, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
you know, listen, in our official role and who we are and all of that, we just we need the truth and this, we're about truth and righteousness. We just want to get to the bottom of it, right? We're going to do our due diligence. That's the public framing of the issue. But even a casual reading tells you that the surface is not the substance. That's not really what's going on. Jesus is letting them know, and it's not new in chapter 10. He's making the case for who he is in terms of what he says and what he does to demonstrate that what he says is actually true, that what he's doing is he's showing them his connection with the Father. And therefore, the draw to believe in him, it's all over the book of John, to believe in him is the fulfillment of all their religious commitments. It's a pretty big deal. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, there's the system of religion and all that. It was true, but it was provisional. In other words, it had a shelf life. So it was true, um, but it was provisional, and it was going to go away as soon as the time of its fulfillment came. Guess what time we're reading about now? The time of its fulfillment. right? And so, now imagine this. Imagine you're really a somebody uh, in your world. And... Uh, but you're somebody in that provisional system that's about to go away. What's really going on here? Is it about truth or is it about power? Um, by the way, as an aside, power is a great acid test for uh, character among people. Right? You could, you could meet a person who's just nice as they could be, a person who's great and gracious and all that. You give them power, and it's very interesting to watch what happens. Not many people pass this test. You give them power, and you see what kind of person they are whenever they're in control. But it, all that to say, the stated issue is not the real issue. Jesus has this agenda, and you can, and, um, you know, this, he has a goal, we might say. And the, what he's trying to get across, and you can basically reverse engineer it in this passage. Verse 38, at the end of it, he's connected to the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. Uh, that connects to I and the Father are one in, in last week's passage. Verse 36, at the beginning of it, I'm from the Father. Right? How did I get here? The Father sent me to you. He, he consecrated me and sent me into the world to you. And that means that, uh, that I'm the fulfillment of all your religious commitments. Your, your religion is true, but it's provisional. And the, the letting go of the provisional is at hand. What do they really want? What's the stated issue? Is it the truth? Is it righteousness? Or is Jesus on the wrong team because they're going to lose their power? Well, what's the debate? Of this debate, Jesus uh, realized that, keep in mind, this whole time, people are standing there and they've got rocks in their hands, okay? It's a, a tense issue. And what Jesus says in verse 32, this is a pretty brilliant argument, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I mean, that's a, a pretty good question. Um, I, I, so let's break it down a little bit. He says, many, many good works I have shown you, right? Many lots of them. And I've shown you. It's not like, ah, if only I'd been there. Nope, there are lots of them and you've seen it. It's been demonstrated. Everybody knows. Everybody's had the opportunity to see this. It's not like they didn't deserve it themselves. It's not like there's somebody over there who's skeptical who just goes, I missed it. Because if you miss this one, there's another one and another one and another one. Many. Uh, this is proof that, uh, that they know firsthand. And he asked this great question I've shown you many works, all these things that you've seen with your own eyes. Which one of those is making you want to kill me? Like, is it, uh, was it for healing this guy? Or was it for, for uh, 
feeding all these hungry people who were desperate? Um, was it something else? Uh, whose suffering was it wrong for me to relieve? Which one? And so he points to his works. You might say from an objective area, this would be what you would call an area of evidentiary strength. Jesus is pointing to something. You see this? All these authenticating markers of who I am. And how did the Jews respond to that? So the second part, you know, it's Jesus in verse 32, but it's the stoners in verse 33. I like that name for these guys. <laughs> and they accuse him of blasphemy, right? Jesus works. They don't even address. Uh, they know his works are relevant evidence. You, if you go back in chapter 9, verse 16, what do we do about his works? We want to reject this guy, but what do you do with this? Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, how can a guy do this if he's not from God? So they're wrestling with it. They have no answer, and Jesus points out the very thing that they don't seem to have the ability to answer, his works, these signs that he's been demonstrating. They say, no, 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 no. They don't even address it. It's not the works. It's the blasphemy. See, you committed a crime. Blasphemy was a capital offense, meaning it's death penalty stuff. And so, anyway, what's, what's blasphemy? What's desecrating God's name or God's truth? Um, and they spell it out in verse 33. Here's the problem, Jesus. You're just a man, and you make yourself out to be God. That's the problem. That's blasphemy, they say. All right. Now, there are a couple of possible defenses that Jesus could make. One, he could say, I didn't say that. Right? You said I committed blasphemy, that's something that you do with you know, what you say, your speech, and I didn't do that. That's one thing. Another is, it's okay that I said that because I am God. Right? Those are two uh, defenses that a person might make. They are right in this sense that Jesus does make himself out to be God. That's not the issue. He does do that. The issue is, is he? Is he God? So, you know, these demonstrations, these, these things, there's a, there's a modern way that people like to deal with Jesus. It's been around for at least 100 years, probably more, where they, they like a middle-of-the-road Jesus, like a good guy who's just a guy, a godly guy who's just a guy. The problem with that is a good godly guy doesn't receive worship, for example, and Jesus does that. So what are you going to do with a guy like Jesus? Okay? Um, so, Jesus goes on to refute the charge, and that's the, the, the rest of the passage in bulk. He does this in two ways. Number one, whenever they accuse him of blasphemy and they're standing around with rocks to stone him, well, the first thing he does is he appeals to the word. Uh, verses 34 through 36. Um, notice that... Look at this. He says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? The very interesting way of putting it. It's like, did Jesus believe the Bible? Yeah. Why does he say that? And then he goes on to say, he quotes a particular verse in the Old Testament, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and notice the end of verse 35, and scripture cannot be broken. What's Jesus doing here? He's appealing to the Word. They agree that Scripture is authority, and he's saying, here's your authority, here's our authority. You agree that this is authority, and this is what your recognized, acknowledged authority says. Um, and it can't be dismissed, the, 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 right? This authority is always right. You never set it aside, you don't dismiss it, and this is what your authority says. And that authority Jesus cites is Psalm 82.6. And this is what it says. I'm going to quote just a little bit more than what Jesus is recorded to have quoted here. I said, quote, you are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, that's kind of a stumper there. It's a, bit, it's a bit enigmatic as far as Old Testament Psalms go because theologians have been wrestling around with Psalm 82 for a while. What an interesting thing to say. There's one God, nobody else should be running around claiming to be God and all of that. But in that uh, in Psalm 82, 6, it says, I said you are God's. What's he talking about there? Um, there are theories. It could be Israel as a whole. There are angels or rulers or something like that. But or I mean, you might see a parallel in the way Moses is said to have functioned. You know, he's functioned like a god to somebody else and that kind of thing. That's not really the big point. Exposition of Psalm 82 isn't the big point. The fact that the Old Testament, their source of authority, just uses that word is the use of the word here, gods and sons of the Most High. So the initial point that Jesus seems to be making is just the use of the word is not something that's automatically off limits, right? Allah, Psalm 82, 6. Do you see what he says there? Isn't that your authority? Yeah, that's our authority. So I used it and they used it. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's a little bit of an argument from lesser to greater. If scripture can refer to people as gods, people to whom the word of God came, is what he said. What's the big deal if I refer to myself as the son of God, given what I've done? Right, Since I'm the one whom God consecrated and sent to you, he's, he's working the meaning in there. Who is he uh, through all this? He appeals to the word. It might be a technical defense in a way, but it's a great defense. So that's the first thing he does is he points to their authority, their agreed upon authority. The second thing is he comes back to his works. Remember the thing they didn't want to deal with? You know, Jesus, which of my works are you going to stone me? And they're like, nah, we're not talking about your works. Comes right back to it. And he says this. This is worth reading. Again, he said, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. So, let me give you an example of something that sometimes I deal with as a, as a pastor. Okay, it's not, you, it's, it's not particularly unique, I don't think, to pastors or whatever, but in the particular role that I have in people's lives from time to time, uh, I might... How to, how to say it properly, but I might be in a situation where I need to say something that's critical, hard to say in somebody's life, okay? And uh, let's just give me the benefit of the doubt. I'm not saying I'm infallible. Um, you could just ask my wife. She would say that I probably said a thing or two wrong uh, before or more than that. Um, but just say that in, in an appropriate way, somebody's wrestling with something, and I tell them something, and they don't want to hear it. One of the interesting things that happens out of that, sometimes people get mad at me. And one of the things that I try to do, I get it, it's a normal human response, but one of the things that I try to do is point them to this. If I'm using God's Word appropriately to glorify God and to help you, um, I'm, I'm just the messenger, right? Like, I love you, I want your best, and so we agree that this is what God says, and I'm just trying to help you here, you're actually dealing with God, and I'm going to get out of the way now, right? So if you're like, don't be mad at me anymore, you know, take it up with the Almighty. Uh, rule number two, don't mess with the Almighty, you know. <laughs> Jesus is doing something similar here. They don't want to deal with the works, and he just brings them right back. Okay, well, you're mad at what I said, but what are you going to do about this thing? Look at the works themselves, verse 37. And, he, and it makes sense. Like, listen, if you don't like what I say, look at what I do. And if my works are not from God, then don't believe. 
It's really simple. If, that, if what you see before your eyes is not from God, uh, just dismiss it. But they can't. Those works are so many and so profound that that's the real stumper for them. Again, chapter 9, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 21. I don't know what to do about it. So he says this. Okay, if they're not from God, don't believe. But if they are, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do with a guy who works, whose works are obviously from God, who says the kind of things that I'm saying to you? Um, here's why. When Jesus does these works, they're a message from God, if they're the works of God. Right? It's a, in parts of John, they're called signs, meaning that they tell you something. They tell you something important. So you should play, pay close attention if God is at work in your midst and speaking through these works because uh, a person no less than God is making himself known to you through those works, right? So what's the message? Well, it authenticates Jesus, who he is, right? He says these things, and then he does these things. He says these things about being the Son of God, and then he does these things to authenticate them. So at the beginning of verse 36, what are these works authenticating? Well, that God set him apart and sent him to you. That's what those works authenticate. Or in verse 30, that he and the Father are one. Or in verse 38, at the end of it, that while different persons, the, they are one in essence and in action. And the implication here is that God is offering you a way through and that way is Jesus. So to reject Jesus is to offer, or is to reject God's uh, way through to you. Like you, you, to reject Jesus, you can't, you can't embrace God and reject Jesus, uh, because Jesus is the one sent to you from God. All right, last part of it, um, the juxtaposition. I like that word. It's a fun word, juxtaposition. Um, and what does it mean? Juxtaposition means to set two things side by side and compare them for the contrast. Hey, this thing looks like this, and then you put another thing right upside next to it, and, uh, and, and it's got the same kind of situation except there's a difference. And you learn something about what's going on from that very contrast. It gives meaning. And in this passage, that's what John is doing, juxtaposition. So early on, there's the Feast of Dedication, they're in the temple, they're pressing Jesus, you know, like, listen, if you're the Christ, you need to tell us. And Jesus tells them, and then they get mad. You know, for people who just want to get to the bottom of it, they're not doing a very good investigation. And they don't believe, so they challenge Jesus, they're threatening to stone him, and he makes a great case, because what's blasphemy? They're saying, you're acting against God. And Jesus, Jesus makes this great case that no one could be acting more for God than he is. But they don't believe. Right? Don't believe. He, he points to his works. Listen, if you don't believe what I say, look at what I do. Think about it and believe. But they don't. Uh, verse 39. With all that evidence, all that data, it says, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. You know, if all else fails and you're losing an argument, you know, resort to violence, resort to force. That's what they're doing in the passage. But then there's this transition, and the, and the author, John, puts it there uh, on purpose. It says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. The truth that those folks before rejected, these folks are receiving. And verse 42, and many believed in him there. 
you know, all John did was point to Jesus. And all Jesus did was authenticate what John said. There's this comparison. You have this way in the early part of the passage, and they don't believe in this little epilogue, you might say, at the end, and they do believe. So what do we make of this? It's it's not, uh, I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to make three observations about Jesus. It's not everything, okay? Because this isn't the whole book. We're just finishing up chapter 10. We're at about the halfway uh, mark. It's not complete. Uh, We're only to this point. But these three things are worth wrestling with right now. And, uh, and, you know, as you see them, you, you get more and more of an idea, more and more clarity on who Jesus is. Here's, here's the first one, some observations about Jesus. Number one, Jesus does not lack for credentials or for, or for proof. There's a lot of them, and they've been public. It's not like these rumors where people are saying, hey, I've seen it, and nobody else has seen it. It's not just his fans who have followed him and gotten this. There's a lot. Jesus has healed a blind man. They're convinced that that's happened. He's fed the 5,000. That's a lot of witnesses, by the way. If you're just thinking about an evidence, right, you know, how did this happen? That's a lot of people on hand who can say it happened. Uh, He's turned water into wine. Uh, Pretty cool miracle. And by the way, if that's not enough for you, just read one more chapter, and he's going to raise somebody from the dead, a a very dead, dead guy who's going to be very alive after that, okay? He doesn't lack for these credentials or for proof. That's not why people reject him, right? When he asks the question, which work makes you want to stone me? They don't even address it. Uh, There are many works out there. You couldn't not see it, to use the double negative. Like, whatever else his enemies said about Jesus, it wasn't that he's a fraud. They either said, we don't know what to do with it, or he does it out of evil, you know, he does it by the power of Satan or something like that. But they saw it. And so in verse 38, it says, if you don't initially believe what I said, then look at what I do. Because the credentials are there. Many works. Lots of them. And it tells you something important about who Jesus is. He doesn't lack for that. The reason on, on the site uh, people rejected Jesus, it wasn't credentials. It wasn't a lack of that. It wasn't a lack of proof. They saw everything they needed to see. Um, second thing. Uh, there's this polarizing effect that Jesus has on people, and that polarizing effect goes beyond reason. Um, people aren't objective. So when, uh, when I started law school, uh, this, uh, it was a little while ago, so the, the first, when I was first at law school, you know, they, the people would ask you questions about the law, and one thing about being in law school is you don't know anything. Um, but people would ask you questions and, and, you know, as you'd study and wrestle through and all of that stuff. But then I remember in my first semester, my torch professor, a guy named uh, you know, Professor DeWolf, cool name. He said, you know, say you get a fact scenario, a friend calls you or, uh, you know, something like that. And they give this fact scenario, and this is what happened and this is what I'm going through and all of that. And they ask you this question, who's right? What's the answer? You know, people start to answer the question. Again, first semester law students didn't know a thing, but that didn't stop them from opining, right? And Professor DeWolf goes, no, 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 no. That's not, who's right? People start, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. Who's right? The answer is, who am I representing? That's who's right. My client is right. It's a beginning with the end in mind. People start by rejecting Jesus, and then they work out and build their case from there. 
happens all the time. Um, it's significant to me, I think it ought to be significant to everyone, that Jesus' audience isn't a friendly one. Like I said, it'd be one thing if his fans were standing up, oh, Jesus is so great, and all of that, right? They could be right, but they could also be biased. But your opponents don't just concede what all your fans and followers claim is true about you. You have to prove it. And Jesus did that, right? They, they, they know he's done these things. Again, you can look at the, the, in the prior passages, what people say is we've, Jesus has done these works and we don't know what to do with it, but we just don't like him. We just don't want to receive him. We just don't want to submit to him. So, whatever else one makes of Jesus, it has to include that Jesus convinced even his harshest critics. Okay? It's a statement of facts here. What did Jesus do in his setting? Hardest cases. How hard were the things that Jesus dealt with? Well, how about a man born blind? How about a hungry multitude of 5,000 plus their families. How about, you know, raising somebody from the dead? Those are three pretty good, you know, works, right? Hardest cases, a healing or a work that was immediate and total. He did it under the scrutiny of his many opponents uh, who obviously would have denied that they occurred if they could have, and he did it over and over and over again so that you knew it wasn't a fluke. Well, maybe he just got lucky on this time. I don't know how you get lucky healing a guy who was born blind when he's 38 years old, but, uh, you know, I don't know how you get lucky raising a guy from the dead who's been in the grave for, let's just say he's about to stink, you know, that kind of thing. You don't get lucky that way. And he did it. He did abs- the hardest cases under intense scrutiny, uh, com- instant total healing over and over and over again. And they know it. So it's not just about, you know, the proof. It goes beyond a person's reason. There's an old uh, Democrat senator from New York, a guy named Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who once made the statement, There's, there are mistakes only someone with a PhD can make. And that's true whenever you think about it, right? Sometimes, sometimes you have to be educated to a certain high level if you're going to make really seriously dumb mistakes. You know, it increases your ability to really mess things up if you have. The people in this first century setting were the religious PhDs of that first century. They had everything you'd need to connect the dots, all the tools, and they're seeing the works right before them, but they don't connect the dots. They take their dot-connecting pencils and they just throw them down in a fit. That's what happens. Polarizing effect. Uh, This goes beyond reason. It goes beyond data. Remember when we talked about juxtaposition? In the early part of the passage, they see something and they reject Jesus. And in the later part of the passage, they see something and they receive Jesus. What's the difference? Well, it's not data. It's the same person, the same types of signs, the same teaching, all of that. Why? Well, we're just in John 10. We get these little elements. If somebody's going to follow Jesus, he's going to have to call them. But whatever else you might say, You'd say it goes beyond a person's reason. You're probably going to need grace in this, uh, in this venture. Last thing, all right? This is hinting. Um, there's something critical about belief in Jesus. How's that for understatement? There's something critical about belief in Jesus. That's like saying when you're drowning in the middle of the ocean, there's something critical about the one and only boat that floats by, Right? There's always this call to believe. So here's a theme in John. 
Just a few examples. John 3.16, believe. Uh, believe so that you won't perish but have eternal life. This passage, see the works and believe. You get to the end of John, and John, the author of uh, this gospel, writes in John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Why believe? Well, because He's the way through. Truth and trust. Uh, or, or, yeah, truth and trust so that you can see what's true and you can navigate um, to your salvation, right? Acknowledge the reality. Who is Jesus and what has He done? And respond accordingly. So here's the question. How do you respond to the one person who can save you? If there's just one, and there is, it's just one, how do you respond to the one person who can save you? We're about to do this uh, song to close. It's called Beautiful Scandalous Night. And it's a, it's a song that reflects on who Jesus is and what he's done. So I want to read part of it for you, and then we'll close that way. It says, Go on up to the mountain of mercy, to the crimson perpetual tide. Kneel down on the shore, be thirsty no more. Go under and be purified. Follow Christ to the holy mountain. Sinner sorry and wrecked by the fall. Cleanse your heart and your soul in the fountain that flows for you and for me and for all. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree on that beautiful, scandalous night you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. On the hillside you'll be delivered at the foot of the cross justified and your spirit restored by the river that pours from our blessed Savior's side. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree on that beautiful, scandalous night you and me were atoned by his blood and forever washed white on that beautiful, scandalous night. Let's pray. Father, how great the salvation. How great the salvation that we, being who we are, estranged from you in our sin, uh, willful in it, in our rebellion, not having any way, access, any way to negotiate with you. And you, unilaterally, out of mercy, respond to us, reach out. And as Jesus here testifies in this passage that you set him aside, you consecrated him and sent him to us. You know, we're people to whom the word of God came. He's the word who came to us. And that he would stand in our place and go up that hill and bear our sins so that we would be forever washed white. You're not just a great God, you're a good God. And we worship you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.